Greetings friends, this is From the Heart of Spurgeon and my name is Jeremy Walker and I'm your host as we read through and study through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Victorian pastor-preacher whose ministry was so much owned of God in his own day and has continued to be a blessing to so many of God's people down through the years ever since. The sermon we're looking at today is simply entitled The Bible and it's number 15 in the sequence. It's in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 1. The text for this sermon is Hosea chapter 8 and verse 12. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. Now, sometimes Spurgeon is dismissed because of his shallow exegesis, his careless uh, hermeneutics, that's principles of biblical interpretation, his uh, perhaps over-spiritualizing of his texts. But Spurgeon here does what he often does, and he opens his sermon by recognizing the immediate context of the text that he's choosing. We have to remember that it's not that he doesn't know, it's sometimes that he makes a different choice about how he's going to interpret and apply the text. And sometimes the sermons are almost all application. There's something uh, quite puritanical about the way that he uh, looks at the original context, then draws out a doctrine, and then presses home the application. So Spurgeon is going to put this text in its context and then make clear how he's going to apply it. And his point is that God, in his mercy, knowing what takes place upon earth, has spoken to mankind and has written to him the great things of his law. God has shown kindness in making himself known to men. The problem is that what God has spoken has been counted as a strange thing, something that has been dismissed and disregarded. So this, says Spurgeon, is his great concern, the Bible, the word that God has spoken. His theme, he says, is a theme which demands more eloquence than he possesses, a subject upon which a thousand orators might speak at once, a mighty, vast, incomprehensive theme which might engross all eloquence throughout eternity and still it would remain unexhausted. That's Spurgeon's sense of what he's going to have to deal with as he discourses about God's word. And he's going to break it down into three headings, again, fairly typical. First, it's author, I have written. Secondly, it's subjects, the great things of God's law. And thirdly, it's common treatment, that it has been accounted by most men a strange thing. And as so often underneath those main headings, he's going to break it down into a few subheadings so that, uh, to use his imagery, we've got hooks to hang our thoughts upon. So his first concern then is who is the author of this book? And he makes it plain from his text, I, that is God, have written to him the great things of my law. Then Spurgeon gives us this lovely little survey of the various human authors of the book. But what he emphasizes is that everywhere he finds God himself speaking, directing the lips and the pens of his appointed servants, so that it is always God's voice, not man's. The words are God's, the words of the eternal, invisible, 
Almighty Jehovah of this earth. Now, what's interesting, and this is typical of Spurgeon again, is that he refuses to try and prove it to us by mere reason. Now, he actually plays a little game with us here. He says, I'm not going to try and prove it to you. I could if I wanted to, because there are a number of arguments that I used and might use. And then he actually tells us what some of those arguments would be. The grandeur of the style above any mortal writing, above any poets, the subjects of which it treats beyond human intellect and so on. So while saying I'm not going to argue like that, he still makes clear there are plenty of arguments that do demonstrate the inspiration of the Word of God. But he's also concerned that if he simply starts to think about that kind of argument, he's going to introduce doubts into our minds. He is a Christian minister, he says, and you are Christians, and there is never any necessity for Christian ministers to make a point of bringing forth infidel or unbelieving arguments in order to answer them. So there's a pastoral heart here. Whether or not you agree with Spurgeon's principle, he doesn't want to unsettle and destabilize people. In fact, in a very interesting passage, he says that he's been in that position himself. An hour, he speaks of, an evil hour when he slipped the anchor of faith and cut the cable of his belief, no longer moored himself close to the coasts of Revelation, but allowed his vessel to drift before the wind. And he said it was a mad voyage in which he was profoundly troubled. He began to doubt everything. He had no notion of what was real and true. And it was only when he came back to the word of God that he realized what he could rest upon, what he could stand upon. And he calls upon us as Christians to believe that God has spoken. So that the the primary um, proof that we have really is the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is in keeping with, for example, the, the 1677-1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. But he then wants to uh, emphasize the authority and the truthfulness and the mercy that there is in having the Bible. He wants you to understand that in your hands, when you hold the Bible, you have God's handwriting and that reason's place is to stand and find out what this volume means, not to tell what this book ought to say. Reason here is at rest in the scriptures. Faith, he will say elsewhere, is reason at rest with God. So we do not come to judge the book, but we come to receive the book because God is speaking to men. And then, because it is of God, we should also note its truthfulness. And he's very insistent here that the Bible should be allowed to say everything that it says, that we should at no point uh, alter or undermine or tidy up God's word. Gentlemen, he says to the preachers who like to dance around the truth, pull the velvet out of your mouths, speak God's word. We want none of your alterations. He says, use the language of election, use the language of damnation. Don't soften what God himself has made known. If God's truth is true, then let it be true. And then it's a mercy that we even have a Bible because God might have left us in darkness. He might have left us, abandoned us in our misery and in our shame. 
but God has spoken not only in creation, but he has spoken in the book of special revelation, and therefore it is most precious. And then before he moves on, a little note of application. What will become of some of you who have not read it for the last month? If you recognize its authority, its truthfulness, and its mercy, then you need to recognize that this is a book that you cannot be without. This is truth that you cannot ignore. And he imagines God speaking to somebody who comes into condemnation, into damnation, saying that he had never bothered reading God's letter of merciful kindness, that he'd turned his back upon God's letter of invitation, and that that's a terrible state to be in. He moves on then to the second point, the subjects on which the Bible treats. Using again the language of the text, I have written to him the great things of my law. The Bible treats of great things and of great things only. Nothing in it is insignificant or unimportant. And then he has these two balancing points that he wants to make. On the one hand, all things in the Bible are great. On the other, they are not all equally important. So all things in the Bible are great. And that means that we cannot just dismiss any of them as insignificant or something that we don't need to worry about. He uses the example of baptism. One sect says infant baptism is right, another says it is wrong, yet you say they are both right. I cannot see that. One teaches we are saved by free grace, another says that we are not, but we are saved by free will, and yet you believe they are both right. I do not understand that. He goes on and gives some other examples, but his point is that the Bible is clear and straightforward, and that what we cannot do is to say that it does not speak where it does speak. Now, we might love someone who esteems the Bible highly enough to be able to say, I believe it says this, whereas I believe it says something else. It's one of the reasons why a confessional Baptist like myself can have love and esteem for a confessional Presbyterian, for example, because we're persuaded that everything in the Bible is important and that it does matter even if there are points at which we significantly disagree about what it might actually say. So this conviction about the importance of the Bible actually holds people together, even where there is some disagreement. So never say it doesn't matter, says Spurgeon. It does matter. If God's written it, it is important. So whatever is here is of some value. So search all questions and try everything by the word of God. But he's also wise enough to say that not everything is equally important, that though everything in the Bible is great and is given because it is important, that there are still some things which are most central and most prominent. And Spurgeon actually says that you couldn't get a better epitome of that than the five points of Calvinism, that those are the, the things that like the very heart of the scriptures, letting God be God and serving God accordingly. So uh, he, he thinks that these are the, the great things, the first things, the central things. Um, and he's actually uh, a little bit resistant to the idea of uh, creeds. He says, search the scriptures for this is the word of life. I hold the Catholic faith, he says, uh, and that's Catholic with a capital C. He means the 
the faith of the universal church, not the Roman Catholic faith, but the universal faith of the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Now, uh, there are obviously uh, issues with that. And actually, I think perhaps by the end of his life, especially during the downgrade controversy, you'd have found that perhaps he would have been uh, a little more definite about the need to uh, have a clear statement of what the scriptures actually teach. But we need to press on and come to the last point, which is the treatment which the poor Bible receives in this world. He asks, what does it mean for the Bible to be accounted a strange thing? For some people, he says, it's strange because they never read it. Now, he's sort of playing with the meaning of the word strange here in the context, uh, almost quipping off the English meaning of strange. But it's strange to some, he says, because they never read it. And people, uh, you may well know them, you may well be one of them, the Bible is a strange book to them. It's just not something that they are familiar with. There are stories perhaps that you've grown up with if you've been brought up in a Christian home or a Christian church that other people are completely ignorant of. And it's important then that we do get to reading our Bibles, especially if we have them available to us, so that Old and New Testament, we know what's in it. We we read our, our novels, says Spurgeon, from beginning to end and get our mouthful of froth but we cannot, we seem to say, read the Bible from beginning to end and we leave it to one side. Others, he say, he says, read the Bible, but then find it horribly dry. It's so boring, says the young man, proving that young men are as much uh, what they were then as they are now. But if it's dry to you, he says, you will end up dry in hell. You need to understand why this is so important. If you find it uh, empty and dry, dusty and pointless, it's because you need to be saved from your sins. But there's something even worse. Some people hate the Bible as well as despise it. It's not just that they think it's pointless and dry. They actively hate it. And Spurgeon says, Rest you well assured, O scorner, that your laughs cannot alter truth, your jests cannot avert your inevitable doom. He's warning people that though you may hate it, it does not for one moment change its truths, including its most fearful threatenings and warnings. And then just one last word to the the so-called philosopher who says it's very well for you to urge people to read the Bible, but there's a lot more in science, in learning, far more interesting and useful than theology. Uh, Spurgeon's got his tongue in his cheek here. Extremely obliged to you for your opinion, sir. What science do you mean? The science of dissecting beetles and arranging butterflies? No, you say, certainly not. The science then of arranging stones and telling us of the strata of the earth? No, not exactly that. Well, which science then? Oh, all sciences, you say, are better than the science of the Bible. Well, Spurgeon says that's the opinion of a man who is far from God. The science of Jesus Christ is the most excellent of sciences. Let no one turn away from the Bible because it is not a book of learning and wisdom. It is. And he says, uh, using uh, some illustrative language that, uh, uh, punning really, would you know astronomy? Here's the sun of righteousness and the star of Bethlehem. Botany, the plant of renown, the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. 
geology and mineralogy. Learn it here in the Rock of Ages, in the white stone with a name graven on it. His point is that there are some things that are more important than what we might now call natural sciences, and that the most important truths of salvation are found in the scriptures. He's not dismissing other knowledge, but he is emphasizing the importance of this knowledge. And then I have done, he says, let us go home and practice what we have heard. And isn't that always the challenge? If uh, if we don't go home and live in the light of the truth that we have heard, then we question whether or not we've really heard the truth. He wants the God of heaven in his infinite mercy when we read our Bibles to pour into our souls the illuminating rays of the Son of Righteousness by the agency of the ever adorable Spirit and then you will read to your prophet and to your soul's salvation. So the significance of this sermon is that even here very early in his ministry Spurgeon is planting a flag not necessarily using modern language and phrasing but emphasising the absolute clarity, perspicuity, sufficiency of the Word of God. It is infallible and inerrant. It speaks to our souls and to all of life. And it is a tragedy when God speaks to man and man neglects the Word of God. And in fact, this is going to be one of the, the keynotes of Spurgeon's whole ministry. It is an expression of his absolute confidence in God's revelation. And that will come out again and again over the course of his sermons, over the course of his life. In fact, once again, as he comes to some of the great doctrinal battles toward the end of his ministry, it is this absolute certainty that the Bible is God's word that remains so important. And the conviction with which he speaks is blessed by the Holy Spirit to the salvation of those who hear. The, the word of God comes through Spurgeon to use the language of 1 Thessalonians with much assurance. He himself is absolutely persuaded of the truth of which he speaks. It is God's word to men. And with the Spirit's blessing, that conviction breeds a matching conviction, an echo in the hearts of those who hear. So it's good for us to think about Spurgeon's confidence in God's word as God's word and his insistence that others take it just as seriously as he does. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.